Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. And please repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant guilty of the crime. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We all took the same oath of office. We are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. Let me just explain that there is this thing that we call lethal injection. Lethal injection is a a method of executing prisoners here in America. It basically involves the uh, collecting and injecting of certain kinds of chemicals through an intravenous that would circulate in the body of a prisoner and would cause them to die. And lethal injection uses things that in my hand would be a medicine But in the hand of the state, it becomes a poison. That was Dr. Zivit, an anesthesiologist here in Atlanta, Georgia. We sat down with Dr. Zivit and his colleague, Dr. Edgar, to get their medical opinions on lethal injection, how it works, and whether or not in their professional medical opinions, it falls under the category of cruel and unusual punishment. My name is is Joel Zivit. I'm a physician, and I'm on the faculty at Emory University. Traditionally, the the mainstay of execution involved a class of a drug called a barbiturate, of which pentobarbital is an example. It's an old drug. It used to be an old sleeping pill. Pentobarbital is uncommonly used in hospitals, but periodically it's used. 
Certain states have had difficulty obtaining pentobarbital. Pentobarbital is in short supply and also manufacturers, vendors don't want it to necessarily get into the hands of states that are going to be using it for execution. Some states have sought alternatives to pentobarbital. And one of the alternatives to pentobarbital is the use of a drug called midazolam. And midazolam is something called a benzodiazepine. You may have heard of drugs like midazolam and the class of midazolam, for example, a drug called Valium. It's actually hard to kill people with midazolam. It's not made for that. It's made not to kill people. And again, to be clear too, none of this is the practice of medicine, nor does medicine have any comment or assistance in any of this. This is the state collecting, gathering, on its own, making investigations and making claims. States who are needing to find chemicals for which to produce death use midazolam as a part of a three-drug or two-drug combination to cause death. Pentobarbital is used actually as the sole agent. Pentobarbital is used in a large quantity here in Georgia, that's the, that's the chemical that's used. And by itself, it can cause death. Midazolam by itself does not easily cause death, and so it's mixed with other chemicals, usually a combination of something called potassium chloride, which is intended to stop the heart, and another drug called a paralytic, paralyzing drug. And what that drug does is when it's given, a person will be motionless. They will not be able to move, not be able to breathe, but inside they'll be very much awake and could experience any kinds of feeling. When you're given a paralyzing drug, if you're not given the antidote or if you're left in the presence of this drug, you will die of asphyxiation. And there is some concern that execution using midazolam and a paralyzing drug is really death by asphyxiation. I'm trying to make a case that pentobarbital is a cruel form of death. And the court is saying, show us the evidence. Maybe um, two years ago now, I think, I was uh, given a file of autopsies. Autopsies performed on executed prisoners here in Georgia. When I looked through the file, it struck me that there was something unusual. It seemed to me that there was some organ damage specifically to the lungs, to the heart, to the liver. None of this I had expected. And so I began to do some investigations of what these organ system failures might suggest. And what we find in the majority of these, these inmates, or these prisoners rather, are this fluid filled in the lungs. And if you can imagine, it's more akin to what you might find uh, in the circumstance of when someone drowns to death. It also looks interestingly similar to when someone overdoses on heroin. And you could ask yourself, is that cruel? By way of legal background, the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution provides protection against cruel and unusual punishment at the hands of the government in the context of criminal sentencing. When the Founding Fathers were drafting the Constitution, they did not have to look back very far at all to find instances of torture and other criminal punishments that were certainly cruel, even if not so unusual for their time. 
Thus, the Eighth Amendment is a direct protection against the kinds of punishment the king and crown used to dole out once upon a time. The problem is, as capital punishment and prison conditions have changed and evolved over time, the vague meaning of the Eighth Amendment is consistently challenged as courts have had to decide just what is and is not cruel and unusual punishment. Like so many things in the Constitution, it is a constantly changing legal standard that is open to debate and interpretation as societal norms evolve. It should come as no surprise that lethal injection and capital punishment is the major leagues of criminal litigation when it comes to the rights of the accused under the Eighth Amendment. This is Dr. Mark Edgar. He is a pathologist and associate professor of pathology and laboratory science. So I spend my day mostly looking at specimens removed from the operating room from patients who are having surgery for cancer or a variety of other non-cancerous things. I teach residents here. I also do autopsies when there are autopsies to be done. I teach medical students and I sometimes interpret some genetic tests. That's basically what I do. My involvement in the justice system is extracurricular. I get permission from the dean's office to consult with the federal defender's office. I have compiled this group of autopsy reports that show pulmonary edema in the majority of inmates that have been executed using lethal injection over the past, I don't know, five years. So pulmonary edema is the movement of fluid into the air spaces of the lung. When you have something like heart failure, for instance, blood backs up behind the heart and produces increased pressure in the tiny capillaries of the lung, and that oozes out into the air spaces. The drugs that are administered for lethal injection, apart from the potassium chloride, would not be expected to affect the heart. So it was surprising to me to find in these autopsies that there was pulmonary edema. Inmates being executed by lethal injection have experienced a variety of uh, symptoms and signs indicating respiratory distress during the administration of the first drug, uh, of the three-drug cocktail involving midazolam. I wanted to see this firsthand the word autopsy means to see for oneself, and so this was an opportunity for me to see for myself what was really going on in the lungs of these inmates who were being executed with these drugs. I saw firsthand exactly what was described. The lungs were heavy, much heavier than normal, maybe twice the normal weight. They were filled with fluid, so when you cut into them, fluid oozed out. When you cut into a normal lung, there's just air there. There was bloody froth in the large airways. These are not findings that I expect to see in someone who's just been given something to go to sleep, something to stop the breathing, and then something to quickly stop their heart. This, again, fit into our concept that midazolam is doing something uh, to cause pulmonary edema. Midazolam, in order to be solubilized, has to be placed in an acid solution. So it has a pH of 3, the normal body pH is 7.4. It seems very likely that that acid is essentially burning the tiny blood vessels in the lungs 
and that's allowing uh, fluid to escape. We also have looked at pentobarbital executions done here in Georgia. Pentobarbital, on the other hand, is highly alkaline. So it has a pH of something like 12 or something like that. It, too, results in pulmonary edema. Same kind of finding, not as frequent, but the same kind of finding. I would say that what I've learned from this experience is that the current lethal injection protocol exposes inmates to a significant risk of severe suffering. I'm not someone who has expertise in anesthesiology or pain management, but I think that has to be changed. There has to be some way to render inmates who are being executed by lethal injection not just unconscious, but completely insensate. The current protocol calls for the midazolam to be administered and then for someone to come in and do what's called a consciousness check. So they poke you, they yell your name, they touch your eyes, and if you don't respond to that, you're considered to be unconscious enough to have the other drugs administered. The problem is that none of those stimuli are noxious or painful enough to rouse someone into awareness the way that pulmonary edema is or the way that the, the second and third drugs are. Midazolam is not an anesthetic. It's not approved for use as an anesthetic. It's approved for sedation and colonoscopies and things like that, but it's not, it's not used to bring about general anesthesia, according to my uh, anesthesiologist colleagues. So that's the problem, is that we have every reason to suspect that inmates executed using the three-drug midazolam procedure are aware of significant pain. So this, the second drug is a paralytic. It's a neuromuscular blocking agent. And we know from cases of awareness during anesthesia what those patients experience. There are times when a patient is not given sufficient anesthetic drug and they wake up during surgery. When they do so under the influence of a neuromuscular blocking agent, they describe often sensations of, of terror and an inability to move, an inability to express their, their pain and a, a sensation of being buried alive. Those patients are not suffocating because their airway is taken care of by the anesthesiologist. But if you didn't have an open airway, you would sense suffocation. We know that if you give uh, potassium chloride, which is the drug most often used, if you give that in any significant concentration to a live patient, they experience severe burning pain. So that drug has to be diluted so that it doesn't cause uh, extreme pain. When it's given by mistake in high concentrations, we know exactly what it does and it's extremely painful. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The court and the law of the land requires that punishment be not cruel. That's the Eighth Amendment that specifically proscribes cruelty and punishment. Cruel is a concept that will naturally evolve with the maturation and evolution of civil society. So with respect to punishment, we used to think it was okay to, say, draw and quarter people 
as part of their punishment. And now we think that that feels cruel to us. This is Dr. Joel Zivit. Lethal injection was very effective at creating the outward impression of a death that would not be cruel because it is so bloodless. Whereas death by firing squad or death by electrocution or death by hanging or death by gas chamber was all very much a spectacle to observe. The court is interested in the experience of the person who is executed with respect to cruelty. But that's, of course, the person that one cannot ask. Because once dead, there can be no opinion. And so it turns out that what cruelty evaluation turns on is the experience of the observer. The individuals who have made the observation will report on what they've seen. By design, lethal injection doesn't show much. I can't know what the experience is because the only person that can really know is the person that has died. I have actually witnessed a pentobarbital execution. I was asked by the prisoner as part of his legal defense. What I saw actually was quite striking on a number of places. First of all, when you go to the prison to be a witness of an execution, you are a prisoner yourself. You really have to go where you're told. Hours go by, and I'm invited now to the execution house. It's now probably 11.30 at night. We walk into a room, which is the viewing area, which is set up a bit like church pews. And as part of uh, being a witness to an execution here in Georgia, I'm not allowed to have a pen, a paper, watch, phone, nothing. Uh, we're looking through a glass now, and there is uh, the prisoner. His name is Marcus Wellens. He's lying on a gurney. You can't hear the sound through the glass. I can see a couple of different intravenous puncture sites that are taped, and one where there is an intravenous attached. The tubing is attached, and it snakes around and through a hole in the back wall of the execution room. I can't see the people who are going to be injecting the medication or the, the chemical again. See, it's hard not to use these kinds of words because of the way this is designed. Even I find it difficult to be careful about the language. Within the uh, room here, there's now Marcus Wellens lying on a gurney covered in a sheet. And there are two corrections officers on either side of him. The warden is in the room. The sound comes on, I assume, and the warden asks Marcus Wellens if he has anything to say. And I can't even recall what he says. He says something. The warden leaves, and I'm assuming now that the execution has begun. There's nothing that says one, two, three, go, or something. It begins now. There's nothing to see. And so I start, because I have no watch, I have no way of making any record of this, I start in my head to count silently to myself the seconds, as I can imagine them, to try to figure if I can get some sequence of the time here of what's going to take place. Maybe 30 seconds into this, one of the corrections officers collapses forward onto the legs of Marcus Wellens. And the room fills with people, suddenly rushing in. And the corrections officer is dragged out. And 
replaced by another corrections officer. The execution proceeds. Maybe 10 minutes later, two what I believe are physicians walk into the room. One is wearing a lab coat. I don't know what the lab coat is for. And the physicians make a show of examining Marcus Wellens, listen with the stethoscope and see. We're now told that Marcus Wellens has died and curtains close. When I consider that, several things. First of all, I couldn't see much. And I'm an expert in looking at these sorts of things and I could not see much. There was not much movement. I know that the prisoner is strapped down by straps that go from top to bottom, including his arms, including his fingers, actually. His fingers are taped. So even if he was wanting to indicate something, there would be no way for him to do it. The doctor with a lab coat, I found that, as a physician, quite disturbing. Because when the corrections officer collapsed, there was a patient there. Whether or not an a prisoner is a patient is a matter of opinion. I would say a prisoner is not a patient, and so a doctor has no mandate to begin with. But that corrections officer collapsed for some medical reason. And I did not see the doctor rush in at that time. So what was the doctor doing there if not to help someone who became ill? As a physician in the state of Georgia, I have a license to practice medicine. The way that I get a license is that the state legislature uses something called the Medical Practice Act. And in the Medical Practice Act, a medical board is put together and the state says, we're not doctors. Here you are, you regulate yourself. But remember that the medical board, of course, is subservient to the state. It's a creation of the state. So now the state wants to use physicians to be involved in executions. And the medical board will say, well, we don't want the physicians to be involved in executions because we think that's a violation of the ethical physician conduct. State can use physicians in any way that the state desires, even if it is adverse to what the medical board may want, and can further protect the identity of these physicians through secrecy so you as a member of the public might want to know whether or not your doctor participates in execution, you would have no way of knowing. Individuals that the state has decided need, they need to use the things that doctors know, the state can do that. In a sense, the chief physician, if you will, of the state of Georgia is the governor, not the medical board. With respect to the rightness or wrongness of capital punishment, I'm agnostic that my view here concerns this method of execution and methods of execution that I think impact on the way the state uses medicine and science for its purposes. I would request that the state free up its relationship or end its relationship with science and medicine. It can execute individuals in another way. And whether or not states choose to carry out executions by another method, again, that's the purview of the state, that's not me. But my position here is that I'm against lethal injection in all of its forms. I think it's clearly cruel. 
and I asked the state to, again, to end its relationship with science and medicine and stop usurping or impersonating science and medicine as if to suggest that there's some level of safe oversight or some kind of accreditation or some, some approval of this kind of technique of execution where there is not. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. 
Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The debate on the death penalty is extremely complicated, to say the least. At its core, it comes down to a couple of points. The first point, from my perspective, hinges on the idea that defense attorneys are charged to act as zealous advocates for their clients. That means leaving no stone unturned when looking for any legal or factual defense available to help their client reach a favorable result. In a capital case, mounting a constitutional challenge to the death penalty is one such legal defense. In order to attempt to avoid the death penalty, defense counsel has an ethical obligation to explore and pursue an Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual challenge. The other point really goes into what the purpose of a prison is, and that varies from state to state and city to city. The three main purposes of prisons are punishment, rehabilitation, and deterrence. Both the death penalty and life without parole effectively rule out the idea of rehabilitation because that person, one way or the other, will be spending the rest of their life in prison. There's some debate about whether life in prison or the death penalty is the more punitive of the two, and I think personally that that varies from one person to the next. Some defendants have actually expressed a preference for the death penalty once they see what life in prison is all about, while others fight hard to avoid the death penalty at trial. But the idea of punishment isn't completely black and white. What this then comes down to is deterrence. In other words, does the death penalty stop people from committing crimes? On the one hand, you have absolute certainty that the person who was convicted for the crime will not commit that crime again once they have been killed by the state. But by looking at states like Georgia or even Texas that happens to have an express lane to the death penalty, we've seen no proof that it makes other people in society think twice about committing other serious crimes. In my opinion, as a practical matter, we need to rethink the death penalty and think harder about what is actually preventing people from committing these crimes in the first place. It is also impossible to overlook the known fact that people are wrongfully convicted. This season, on this show, we spoke with people who were convicted wrongfully, imprisoned wrongfully for crimes that they did not commit. As it is, there is no way to get them their lost time back, but if they had been executed, the injustice would have been truly irreversible. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, there have been 166 individuals exonerated from death row in the United States since 1973. That's 166 people who were sentenced to death for crimes that they did not commit. With the death penalty comes finality. There is no more room to right a wrongful conviction once someone has been executed. As for me... If I ever find myself looking down the barrel of the choice between a life sentence without parole or the death penalty, I think I would probably choose life in prison. I don't think I could sleep at night knowing that the date of my assigned death was right around the corner. But I think other people might think differently. 
that a life in prison is really no life at all. The debate rages on. Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iHeartRadio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer. Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group. Beck Media and Marketing and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at PhilHollowayESQ. Our website is SwornPodcast.com, and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at sworn at tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.